But all right, grab your Bibles and let's go to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. Uh, we're going to be looking as we continue this series on sort of living as exiles. How do we live faithfully in the midst of a pluralistic, polytheistic, uh, secular culture? This is where Daniel finds himself. This is where his three friends find themselves. They're out of power. They are no longer in the center of sort of this. The, the, the world doesn't revolve around them and their beliefs. Things are hostile to them. So how do we faithfully live in a culture? like that, right? And that's what we're discovering in the book of Daniel. Now, um, if you have any relationship to the corporate world or organizational leadership or things like that, then no doubt at some point you've heard the term core values, right? What are core values? Core values are those values that we hold or that a corporation holds, we might say, that says, okay, the, these, are, these are what we really believe. These govern our behavior, that when push comes to shove, uh, we will behave in this way. And so core, core values are not just corporate jargon, right? Some corporations might have like, oh, we value excellence. Well, I don't know what that means, right? What do you mean and how is that going to govern your behavior? These are real values, let's say, that a corporate corporation or an organization, a church, whoever says, we hold these things. And, and in fact, uh, these, are, these are like sort of DNA for us. We're not making these up. These actually exist within our corporation. Patrick Lencioni is kind of a corporate guru. Uh, and here's what he says in a book called The Advantage. He says, an organization knows that it has identified its core values correctly when it will allow itself to be punished for living those values. That's great, right? So that is that I know that these things are real, this corporate, these corporate values are real, if in fact I'm willing to say, hey, I'll lose money. I'll be punished. I'll, uh, things may not go the way I thought because I, I'm, I, I hold to these so dearly that I'm willing for you not to like me. I'm willing to lose reputation. I'm willing to lose money. He gives an example of, of uh, Herb Kelleher, who was the founder and CEO of Southwestern Airlines. If you've ever flown on a Southwestern flight, you know that they're kind of funny, aren't they? I mean, I was on a Southwest flight one time. We were coming in for a landing. I think it was, it, I, I actually don't know where it was, but I just remember as we're landing, the pilot comes over, literally in the minute, uh, in, the, in the time of landing, comes over the loudspeaker and goes, whoa, big fella, and starts, and I just, I'm like, what in the world, right? It's hilarious. And, and they're just like that, right? They, they, they do things that, that, that are funny. So, so there's a story told that a woman got on a Southwest airline. She was a frequent flyer and she, she listened to them give their whole safety lecture, right? This whole thing. And the flight attendant was kind of making light, was joking to sort of keep people's attention when she was doing it. Well, this didn't sit well with this frequent flyer. And she wrote to Herb Kelleher, the CEO, and says, hey, I don't think that's appropriate. This is serious business. She shouldn't be joking around about stuff like that. Now, most corporate CEOs would go, man, you're right. I'm sorry. And boy, thanks for your business. You've been a valued customer. And, and, uh, and we'll talk to that employee and make sure that we kind of um, you know, handle things differently. But not Herb Kelleher. He wrote back and he just had a three-word response to her. We'll miss you. <laughs> right? He's saying, I'm, I'm willing to lose your business. Like, this is such a core value of us. This sort of fun-loving humor idea is such a core value. We really believe this, that I'm willing to be punished by you not flying with us anymore. 
Now, I'm not, I'm not here to give you a corporate lecture, right? We're here to talk about the Bible. But here's what I want you to hear. What's true of corporations is true of individuals. Core beliefs are not just things that you think you believe. Core beliefs are things that you're willing to be punished for. They're things that you're willing to say, I stake my life on this. Like, I believe this so deeply that I, I'm willing for you, not, I'm willing to lose money. I'm willing to lose reputation. I'm willing to lose a job. In fact, I'm willing to lose my life. And this is exactly what you're going to see in Daniel chapter 3. These three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, maybe one of the most famous uh, uh, stories in all of Scripture who are thrown into a fiery furnace, right? They're going to they're gonna go, they're going to be told to bow down and worship this idol, but they will not do it. Why? Because there was a real core belief that says there is one God, we worship that God, and we'll be punished because that's how dearly we hold it. See, that's what a core belief is. A core belief that says, I will believe this, I will obey it, even if it kills me. Now, what does this have to do with living as exiles? One of the things you're going to learn in Daniel chapter 3 is there are certain things that we should expect as exiles, certain things, Christian, that we had to just right now resolve, this is what it means. This is what we know is going to happen if we're going to live as exiles in a culture that is hostile toward us, okay? So I'm going to give you five things that you can expect. And the first one is simply this. You will be confronted with the idols of this world. Okay, look at, look at chapter 3 and uh, starting in, in verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits, its breadth six cubits. So that it means it was about 90 feet tall, about a nine-story building, about nine feet wide. Grossly disproportionate, by the way, but there he sets it up, probably puts it on a pedestal. And it's probably, by the way, not a statue of himself. It's probably a Babylonian god. Okay, and he sets it up, he says, on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon, which, by the way, some scholars believe is the same place of the, uh, of the Tower of Babel. And then King Nebuchadnezzar, he invites the, it says he sent to gather the satraps, prefects, governors, the counselors, treasurers, justices, magistrates, all the officials of the province to come to the dedication of the image that he had set up. Okay, so what's happening? In verses 1 through 7, here's what you see. He sets it up. They build this image, this massive image, invites all of the ruling class, right? All of the state representatives, everybody comes. This is a high-class affair. This is dignitaries of all sort coming to this festival, if you will, and he says, when you hear the music play, right, when the trigon and the lyre and the bagpipe and all these, he says, all kinds of music start playing, then I want you to fall down and worship that idol. And so they call him together. They play the music. And he says to all the people, right, the state representatives are there, everybody's there, the dignitaries are there, and he says to all nations, all peoples, all languages, everybody fall down and worship this statue. Worship this God that I've set up for you. You will be confronted with the idols of this world. This is what's happening in, in verses 1 through 7. Now, now, what this ought to 
sort of, you, you ought to, if you have any sort of biblical understanding, and I would say if you have even an understanding of the Ten Commandments, is that all, if that's all you've got, something ought to be going off in your head right now. Like, you can't do this, right? If you're a faithful Christian, if you're a faithful Jew, you cannot worship other gods. First commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Second commandment, don't make any graven images of me, right? So if they're setting it up to say, oh, this is an image of God, don't worship it. If they're setting it up and saying, worship this other God, don't do it. Any way you slice it, this is a clear violation of Scripture, isn't it? This is a clear violation that God has not fudged on. This is not a gray area. This isn't like, oh, man, I didn't know. It seemed like you could go either way on this. No, this is very clear that, that this is now going to violate one of the main tenets of our faith. Are you going to worship the idols that confront you in the culture? And here's what the writer's going to do now. He's going to set this up and say, this is what happened. And then he's going to go on and say, so now watch these three men. Look at what they do. Imitate them, in fact. Because what you're going to find out, what did they do? They, they said, no. No, we will believe and we will obey the first commandment, even if it kills us. There, there's the message. We will believe and obey what God tells us, what we see clearly written in Scripture, even if it kills us, right? But that's difficult. Think about how, think about how all the cards were stacked against these three average men that we're going to read about here in a second. These three average men. You've got, you've got, first of all, every dignitary in the country. You've got everybody. You've got this cultural elite. You have all the government officials. This is a power festival, and every Everybody comes and bows down and worships this idol. But not just them, all the average people as well, all nations, peoples, tongues, everybody is doing this. Can you feel the peer pressure here? Like this is an event that has gone viral. This is, this is like there's nobody not doing this. And so when this emotional music starts to play and the festival and it all starts to work up into this frenzy, man, I sort of get caught up in the moment and I'm just going to do what my peers do. I'm going to go the way they go. And the writer of Daniel is going to say, not these three men. I mean, I mean, think of this. Think of the pressure. Think of the emotional, psychological manipulation. And then think of what the king is going to say. Oh, by the way, if you don't bow down and worship, you'll immediately be cast into a burning furnace and we'll burn you alive. Burning has a way of changing core beliefs. Right? Oh, yeah, whoa, kidding. Whoa. Did I say I believe that? I don't really believe that. Bow. I mean, they're faced with death. They're faced with a horrific death. To be burned alive. See, listen, Christian, most of us, most of us will never face being burned alive. But every single one of you in this room at Grand Avenue, myself included, will face the pressure to conform to the idols of this world. 
to bow down, to assimilate with our culture, to fit in. Man, I just want to fit in, especially, by the way, not when it's just like, man, I want people to like me, but when, fit, when not fitting in costs you. When not fitting in costs you a job, when not fitting in costs you a sale, when not fitting in, when not assimilating means that you're going to lose popularity or reputation or status or power. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Like this is, this is what you're confronted with. This is what I'm confronted with. Is the cultural pressure so strong on you, Christian, that you will say, I'll submit. Every person in here is going to be confronted with the idols of this world. But the second thing you're going to see here is that you can expect to be criticized by the people of this world. This is verses 8 through 12. Okay, so look what happens. Let's just look at verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. That's verse 8. Verse 9, they declared to the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, you, O king, have made a decree, right? You made this decree that when the sound goes off, everybody's to fall down and worship that golden image. Verse 11, whoever does not fall down should be cast into a burning fire or furnace. But there are certain Jews. Let me name them. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. These three men didn't do what you said. They paid no attention. King, you've been good to them. In chapter 1, by the way, King, you set them up as rulers. You've only been kind to them. It's because of you that they're in the power that they are, but they will not bow down with everybody else. See, see people in this world aren't going to like you. We should not be surprised by this, Christian. I mean, it's what Jesus said. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. Blessed are you, in fact, when others criticize you and revile you and call you all kinds of names. For great is your reward in heaven. And here's these people that come before the king and tell him, they flatter, they, they, they lobby him, they butter him up, right? And they say, look, look, they, they, they haven't done what you've asked. See, people don't like it when you don't worship their gods. They're okay with Christianity, Christian, as long as we don't say things like, Jesus Christ is the only way. There is no other God to worship. That this Bible is actually true. No, they'll say things like, I can't believe you still believe that. I can't believe you're on the wrong side of history. How stupid can you be? And not only how stupid, we hate the fact that you embrace that. We hate the fact that you talk to us about Jesus as though he's the only way. We hate that you talk to us about God. How can you be so narrow-minded that's what I hate about Christianity. You're so exclusive. You're so narrow-minded. Listen, we've said this before. It is not narrow-minded. It's either right or it's wrong, and you better find out. If we're wrong when we say that Jesus Christ is the only way, run from us. But if we're right, I mean, it's like a doctor, right? Ten doctors give you one medication. You go to the 11th and he, she looks at you and says, nope, they're all wrong. You should be taking this medication. Is that doctor being narrow-minded? Would you ever say, I can't believe you're so narrow-minded. No, you'd either say, whoa, 
she's either right or wrong, and I better find out which one. Right? The world doesn't like this. And so we, we are criticized by them, right? And if, do you feel this? Do you feel this? Like, like I, I feel like I can't talk about my faith. I feel like I can't talk about what I really believe. See, if you don't feel that, it's probably because you've either assimilated and it doesn't matter or you've totally isolated yourself and now you're, you're not even a part of the broader culture. You're not Jeremiah 29, like we talked about a few weeks ago. You're, you're going to be criticized. Are you ready for that? Are you okay with that? Like, I'm not saying you've got to love it but it's going to be part of your life, Christian. The third thing I want you to see is that you're going to be challenged to worship the gods of this world. Look at, look at verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought him, brought these men before the king. He answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? And so here's what he does. I'll make you a bargain. I'm going to give you one more chance. Isn't that kind to me? I'm going to play the music one more time. We're going to go through this whole ordeal one more time just for you three and get ready. And if you'll bow down, then great. All settled. No problem. But if you don't, there is a very hot furnace waiting for you. And look at the, look at the last line of verse 15. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Doesn't it feel like that sometimes? the gods of this world. God, where are you? Where are you in this moment? I feel alone. I feel powerless. It feels like you're powerless. And this is what Nebuchadnezzar is saying. Your God's powerless. He can't do anything. Who's going to get you out of this? I mean, he might have given Daniel a dream in chapter two. He might have made you fatter than the others in chapter one. He can't get you out of this. I have ultimate power over you. <laughs> See, this is going to happen. We're going to be challenged. And let me just say something. We, we, we said this a couple weeks ago, right? Remember, remember, remember what Pastor Ike's father taught him when he was a kid? He told him, he told him son, you got to build, build an ark before it rains. Like, you got to decide before this thing happens. you got to have in your mind, how am I going to react? What's my response going to be? I better, be, I better have core beliefs. I better know these things are really true about me before it rains. And look at, here's what I think. I think. I think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had months to think about what was coming, right? This statue didn't pop out of the ground overnight. It's being built. It's being constructed. They're watching this thing go up before them. Hey, it's headed out in the plain of Dura, and guess what that's being built for? They're going to call a festival. This doesn't, you don't call a festival 24 hours before. We want everybody to show up. Clear your calendars. We're letting you know this is coming. And they probably huddled together and goes, guys, what are we going to do? What do we really believe? Is the first commandment true or is it not? This isn't a gray area. Will we bow down and worship or will we not? See, they decided in advance, we're not going to do this. If you wait until the moment of truth to decide, you'll probably fail. You'll capitulate. You'll assimilate. You have to make up your mind where you stand. And then by God's grace, you stand. See, see what, what, what are you going to do, Christian? I heard a pastor this week saying, hey, he was talking to another group of pastors out at a conference and uh, he said, guys, maybe if we're lucky, maybe we'll all be in prison someday together. What are you going to do? 
What are you going to do someday if what you believe is illegal? What are you going to do if someday the Supreme Court rules that you can't say what the Bible says you must say or believe what the Bible says you must believe? Well, suddenly your core beliefs kind of like, yeah, I didn't really mean that. Does that make you afraid? I'm not trying to, honestly, I'm not trying to make anybody afraid here. I'm just saying, I think, I think it's the kind of things we have to think about. Corey Ten Boom, if you don't know who she was, she was her, her family was taken by Nazi Germany during World War II, thrown into a concentration camp. Everybody in her family died, uh, her father. But when she was a young girl living in Holland, she tells a story that she was waking up in the night with these nightmares about her father dying. You know, that's a, that's a really frightening thing for a child, right? To think mom and dad could die. What would I ever do? And she came, his, her father's name was Casper, and she came to Casper and she said to him, Papa, like, like I, I keep having these dreams and, and, and I'm, I'm afraid. I'm, I'm afraid. I don't know what I'm going to do if you die. I, I think Casper uh, must have been the best father who ever lived. I mean, you read stories about him and I'm like, my gosh, I wish I was a Casper. He said to her, he said, Corey, when we go on the train, when do I give you the ticket? And she said, well, right before we get on. He said, exactly. And this is what God will do for you. He's not going to give you the strength before. He's going to give you the strength right when you need it. And this is what happens over and over. I mean, we've got, we've got stories of martyrs through the age that couldn't probably have imagined that they would have to go through what they went through. But in the moment, God give them, gave them grace. There's an early martyr by the name of Lucy. She was an 11-year-old girl living in the time of the Roman Empire and the gladiators who was, who was killed in the Colosseum for her faith. 11 years old. And at 11 years old, they said that the eyewitnesses said it was something like, like watching an angel. And they said, they said when, she, when she stood before the gladiator, the gladiator raised his sword over her. And he was trembling. And she grabbed his sword and put it where it would help him kill her the quickest. How do you do that? Most of us will never face this. That's like the ticket being handed to you right when you need it. We're going to be challenged, right? We're going to be challenged to worship the gods of this world. See, I'm probably never going to face a fiery furnace. I'm probably never going to face a sword over my head. But every day I face a much bigger fight, perhaps, and it's the fight for my faith. Every single day I have to decide, am I going to actually bow down and worship these other gods? Am I going to give in? Am I going to capitulate? See, see, Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, this story is not just about this big epic moment where they were willing to give their lives for the sake of the gospel or whatever. It's about all the little decisions, right, for us. All those daily decisions is God is Christ my Lord today. Will I worship the gods? There's a battle going in your heart right now. Who will you worship? The gods of money, sex, power, fame, popularity, comfort, leisure, whatever. Who, or will you worship God? This is, this is Joshua's gauntlet being thrown down and saying, choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. 
What will you do? Because you're going to be challenged by the gods of this world. They're going to promise you life. I'll save you from the flames. I'll make you happy. I'll give you security. Will you capitulate to that or you believe the Lord? Number four, you can expect as a Christian courage. That's what I just talked about, courage in the face of danger. Look at verse 16 to 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? So here's the king saying, who's the God who's going to deliver you out of my hands? Nobody's able to do this. And they answered to the king and they said, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. This is awesome. And what are they saying? See, see here, here, here's what I think. I, I think he, Nebuchadnezzar just goes, I'm going to be nice. I'm going to give you a chance. You can worship. You can bow down and we'll forget the whole thing. And they could have done what a lot of Christians do, a lot of politicians do, go, well, in my personal life, I don't believe that. But in my professional life, I go with the flow. So I've sort of bifurcated my life, and, and as long as you're not looking at me, I mean, personally, I'm against abortion. Professionally, I don't really take a stand. Personally, I believe that Jesus Christ is the, uh, is the only way. Professionally, I, you know, look, I, I got a teacher. I got to talk in a certain way, and I, I don't want to exclude anybody. And so I, I can wiggle my way off that hook and go, you know, they could have just said, you know what I'm doing? I'm, I'm okay, I'm, I'm bowing down on the outside but on the inside, I'm standing up. They don't do that. King, you need to know, this ain't going to happen. And they say, our God can deliver us, right? In other words, he's able. God actually can deliver us out of this fiery furnace. If that's what he wants to do, he's able. But, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down to you. So go ahead, light it up because it ain't happening. See, see, they never, Christian, we never doubt God's ability. What we, what we wonder about is God's purpose. See, they were sure of God's revealed will. They knew what God said about bowing down to other idols. Absolutely do not do it. What they were unsure about is whether God would choose to deliver them but they still go through with it. Go ahead. See, see, are you concerned more about your security or your loyalty to God? This is the choice you're going to be faced with, right? Over and over again. I don't know how many of you ever heard about the five missionaries that went down to, I believe it was Peru. They were trying to reach the Aka Indians in the 1960s, and two of them, one was a guy named Jim Elliott, another guy was a guy named Nate Saint. And these guys were unbelievable. They were, they were carrying firearms when the, the, tr the very tribe they were trying to reach came out of the jungle and speared them to death. They could have fired back, but they didn't. They chose to die because their souls were secure. 
So in fact, a few months before they left, I believe it was Jim Elliott who, who wrote famously, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Less well-known is something that Nate Saint wrote. He wrote this in his journal. He said, the way I see it, we ought to be willing to die. In the military, we were taught, were taught that to obtain our objectives, we had to be willing to be expendable. Missionaries must face th that same expendability. So there's a willingness to suffer. There's a willingness to go through this. And you know what that says? See, see we have this idea that if God blesses me and I got a big house and a great career, a nice car and well-behaved children and all this American dream, people will look in and, oh, let me tell you about Jesus. He's blessed me so much and I want you to to know him as well. And they'll look and go, I got the same thing. You know what makes Jesus look exceedingly valuable? You know what says that Jesus is my treasure above anything? It's when I'm willing to lay down my life. Nothing says Jesus is more precious than being willing to lose reputation and power and money, and even your life. And so what happens? These men face the music with courage. This is their finest hour, by the way, right? We, we all sort of want to jump ahead. Oh, they got rescued from the fiery furnace. They didn't know that was coming. Walter Luthi says this, about them. He says that these, that there are three men who do not worship Nebuchadnezzar's totalitarian state is a miracle of God. The miracle of the confessing church. That the three were not devoured by the fire is no greater miracle. Suppose the fiery furnace had consumed them. The real miracle would just have happened, would just the same, Right? This is unbelievable. The courage that God gave them to face the king. This is where the, the Bible says, I mean, don't worry about what you're going to say before governors and kings. The Holy Spirit's going to give you. The Holy Spirit's going to give you courage and grace and all these things that you're going to need in the moment before the train leaves the station. Praise God. But then the, the fifth thing I think you can expect is confidence. Christ is with you in this world. This is the rest of verses 19 through 30. Now, what happens? Nebuchadnezzar's angry. Okay, heat the furnace. So he heats it seven times more. It's this idea. I don't know that it was like, you know, we took the temperature and it was 100 degrees before. Now it's 700 degrees. That's not the idea. The idea is he heated it to its maximum. So much so that when they opened it, the guards that threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they perished from the heat of the flames. Imagine this. It would immediately burn your clothes off. It would immediately singe your hair. You would be gone in a matter of seconds in a, in a furnace like this. And they walk in, and it says that Nebuchadnezzar looks in, and they're kind of just walking around the flames like they're in a park. Hey, what's up? And Nebuchadnezzar looks, and it says down in verse 24, did we not cast three men bound in the fire? His officials look and say, yeah, true, O king. Verse 25, I see four. Unbound. 
And they're walking in the midst of the fire and they're not hurt. And the appearance is like the son of the, the fourth has the appearance like the son of the gods. And he came near and he says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out here, right? And then he, get, he falls down and says, man, there's no God. I just said that no God could deliver out of my hands. And now I see there has, and there's no God like your God. And he elevates them to a place of, of esteem in the province of Babylon. But what happened? There's confidence that Christ was with them. See, here's what I want you to hear. There's a great irony, by the way, happening here. Nebuchadnezzar can't save the people he wanted to keep alive, and he can't kill the people he wanted dead. I, I want these guards alive, right? They're, they're serving and worship, they're helping me. I want these three dead. The guards die, they stay alive. This is a miracle, right? Strolling around the flames. Why? Because there's a fourth man in there. This is weird. Who is this man? Nebuchadnezzar says he's like a son of the gods. That's not accidental, right? Did you hear the echoes of the New Testament coming into your head right now? And so most scholars believe that what he saw was a Christophany. That is that Christ, the second person of the Trinity, is walking, is in the flames with them. Now notice, Christ isn't sort of covering them. He's with them. He's with them in the midst of these flames. And they come out, their hair isn't singed, they're not, they don't smell like smoke, nothing has, their clothes are not burned, all of this, right? There's a man walking in the flames. This is, this is what you're supposed to see. Somebody else is in there. This is the hope for exiles, Christian. This is the hope for those who go, man, the gods are confronting me. The gods are challenging me. I'm being told to bow down and worship. I will not do it. And the answer to you and me as an exile is that Christ will be with you. Christ will walk with you. When you face persecution, when you face suffering, when you face the flames, when you face death, Christ will be with you. Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Jesus says. And behold, I am with you. Even to the end of the age. See, see, Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon says this. He says, beloved, you must go into the furnace if you would have the nearest and dearest dealings with Christ Jesus. Listen, here's what, here's what you'll hear. Why does God allow suffering? Especially to good people like we think we are. Why does he allow Christians to go through this? Because there are some things you will never know about the nearness and dearness of Christ apart from it. You will hear people that have been to, through suffering like you've never seen say, you know what? I mean, I think of Johnny Erickson Tata who's been in a wheelchair since she was something like 17 years old. And she now has chronic pain in her body and she has suffered more than any of us will probably ever suffer. And yet she says, I would not give up this wheelchair for anything if it meant I didn't know God the way I know him now. This is suffering. This is how we're supposed to think of suffering, Christian. Because this is what God does. He walks through this. See, Spurgeon says we're not going to know his nearness. We're not going to know his nearness. Why? Because this is where God has promised to meet us. 
I mean, Psalm 23, even though I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you're with me. Someday you're going to walk one way or another. Every person in this room is going to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And here's the promise of Scripture. He will be with you. Isaiah chapter 43, I will be with you when you pass through the water. When you pass through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. You will not be scorched. Don't you love this? Years before Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You will not be scorched when you walk through the fire and the flame will not burn you. Go and make disciples. I'm with you even to the end of the age, Jesus said. And then Paul has this magnificent crescendo in chapter 8 of Romans. Who can separate us from the love of God? Can tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, danger or sword? As is written, like we are, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. We are being put to death all the day long. No, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He will be with you, Christian. He will walk with you through the deepest of your valleys. Listen to me. Here's what I want you to hear so clearly. God might not rescue you. There was no guarantee to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But he will be with you. He might not take you out of the fire, but he will be in the fire. The fires of this life may consume you, but the fires of hell will never touch you. Never. You won't even smell like it. You'll get to heaven, and like C.S. Lewis said, if somebody asks you, how did you endure such suffering? You'll say, what suffering? What fire? What flames? What problems? I don't even smell like it. There's not even an inkling of that because of what Christ has done. Why? Because there was a fourth man in the furnace, and that man, by the way, do you notice it's like four men go in, three come out. Three men go in, they see a fourth, but only three come out. Why? Because the fourth is consumed by the flames so that you don't have to be. He takes your punishment. He takes your place. And this is the gospel. That Jesus Christ was consumed so that you would not have to be. You know what I want you to hear from this? Daniel 3 is telling you the only thing that matters is whether you keep the first commandment, even if it kills you. And the only thing you need to remember is that Christ will be with you, giving you the grace to endure. That's the promise, Christian. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for this incredible chapter that shows us the power of God to be with us in the midst of our deepest, darkest, fiery trials and suffering. And I pray, God, I pray that we would be Christians, we would be exiles who would learn to suffer for the sake of the gospel. 
We would suffer financially. We'd be willing to give, even in things like this campaign. We'd be, we'd be willing to, to go above and beyond, God, but we would also be willing to face the hostility of a culture. We're not trying to be jerks. We're not, we're not trying to just thump our chest and say we don't care what people think. But God, I pray we'd care most of all what you think. We'd be most concerned with being obedient and believing even if it kills us. God, give us that kind of core belief that's real, that doesn't, doesn't run away when the fiery trials come, that doesn't run away when we're, we're presented with persecution or hardship or, or, or a, a, a downward grade in status or popularity of having to suffer financially because we believe something. Father, that may happen to many of us. But I pray, God, you would give us the grace to endure. You said you would, and so I thank you for that. And Father, I pray, I pray for anybody here today that doesn't know Jesus Christ. I mean to the place where, God, this is a, a core belief where Christ is their greatest treasure. Not just I go to church, not just I, I kind of dance around Christian things. I sort of think I like the morals, I like the behavior, I like the Bible, I like being encouraged and things. But God, that people would say, man, this is my all. I pray that today there'd be people that would be brought closer to you, that would grow, that would move into a place of just utter commitment to you. Where no matter what the world throws at us, we will stake our claim and say this world, in this world, we are aliens, we are strangers, we are exiles, but there is coming a world where God is on the throne, where he is the sun, he is the light, he is everything, and anything we think we've missed in this world, we will gain in the world to come, even if we pass through the fire. So God, do that today. Draw people to yourself. Let that commitment just begin to germinate in our hearts so that we can be faithful in the midst of a polytheistic, pluralistic, secular culture. Give us the strength to endure, we pray. We love you, we thank you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. <laughs>